What does it mean to be a man in the 21st century? What can we learn from people who study and work with men? Why does focusing on masculinity matter? These are some of the questions we are here to answer. I'm Alex Bove, inviting you to talk like a man. Hello, everyone. It is episode six of the Talk Like a Man podcast. Today, my guest is Jace Lindgren, whom some of you may know from the Multi Amory podcast. He is one of the co hosts of that podcast. He is also a non monogamous dating coach, a healthy masculinity educator, and a sex positivity advocate. And we talk about all of those things uh, in our interview. He's trained in positive psychology, emotional freedom technique, consent education, and Buddhist mindfulness practice. And he's also worked with the government and celebrities on HIV public awareness in Russia. I met Jace when I was a guest on the Multi-Emory podcast, a little bit of a shameless self-plug there. And Jace and I talked briefly at that point about uh, his idea of maybe putting together a masculinity-themed podcast. I think I had said that I wanted to do a podcast for this project. Uh, And he said he was thinking about doing one too. And I said, well, why don't you come on my podcast? And he said, sure. And it took a little, little while to get that together, but we did. And uh, so we were able to record this interview. So uh, the interview runs about an hour, so I'm going to get straight to it. But I just want to give one prefatory remark here, which is that Jace was in Japan when we recorded this interview. And so uh, due to the awesome power of the speed of sound, uh, there's a little bit of a delay between our audio. And there are times when... I think I'm talking over him a little when I didn't mean to, or, or, or I will ask a question and there's a little bit of a delay before he hears it, before he responds. So I, I would ask everyone just to be a little bit patient. There are going to be some longer pauses in this podcast than you may be used to. And that's, again, just due to the fact that there's a time delay between where I am on the East Coast of the United States and Japan, where Jace was. Uh, but other than that, I have nothing really to say, and I just want to get straight to it. So please enjoy this interview with Jace Lindgren. Well, Jace Lindgren, welcome to Talk Like a Man. Uh, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Sure. So I want to talk about a whole bunch of things, and we'll kind of see what direction <laughs> we go in. Um, yeah. But I, I, I wanted to start with... Um, what you're doing in terms of masculinity education. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's interesting. So for me, um, masculinity is something that has been interesting to me kind of since college was the first time that I realized that masculinity was a thing, I guess, like that it was a thing worth thinking about or studying and not just, you know, it's like when it's the air you breathe, you don't even notice it. Um, And since then, it's been something that's interested me. It's definitely not like the core part of my business um, because I'm, you know, as as part of the Multi-Amory podcast and then through my own work, it's more about uh, helping people to improve their relationships, just period. Um, However, masculinity is a part of that just because it so influences the way that we behave, especially as men, but I think it also affects the way that Um, women interact with men um, and maybe even interact with each other since kind of the whole system of the way that we value and devalue masculine versus feminine traits and the fact that we even try to identify them that way um, is just so significant in the way that we all operate in the world. Do you, do you work mostly with individuals? Um, Yes, yes. Generally uh, with individuals rather than like couples or something like that. Right, right. Yeah. Yes, generally with individuals. Um, And the reason for that is that I think that, I think that when it comes to understanding how we relate to other people and kind of getting to understand ourselves better and like what our motivations are and what really matters to us, that is more of an individual thing. You know, it's, it's something that ideally you come together with a partner to, you know, to, to help each other in that and to work as teammates in that. Uh, but, but ultimately like it has to start from a place of being personally invested 
And um, do you find that you work more, more with men or women or a, any particular group of people? Yeah. So as far as the stuff that we do with multi-amory that tends to be more, um, you know, like we do the podcast and courses and workshops and things like that, those tend to be about 50-50. Um, like our sort of demographics of our show is just slightly more uh, female identifying than male identifying, maybe like 52% to 48, you know, so really quite, quite close. Um, but in terms of the people that I work with on more of a one-on-one -on -one basis, uh, definitely tends to be more men, usually because, you know, men want to work with someone who can kind of have a sense of having experienced some of the same things that they've experienced being raised as a man. Uh, and so those tend to be the people that I end up working with more one-on-one -on -one or like in a small group coaching setting or something like that. I wanted to know more about the emotional freedom technique. I don't know if this is relevant to this particular part of the <laughs> sure, discussion, yeah. but it sounds like maybe this is, we're starting to get on that track. Um, sh you know, actually that's, that's not something that I do in, in much of this coaching, uh, but it is something that I found very beneficial for myself, um, doing with, with a counselor. Um, and I guess just sort of real quick for, for people listening, uh, emotional freedom technique or EFT, um, not to be confused with emotionally focused therapy, which is also EFT and also <laughs> a thing that counselors and therapists do. So a little confusing. <laughs> Um, it, it basically is sort of a system of like tapping on pressure points on the body um, while talking through things, generally traumatic things, or it was actually, I believe, originally developed for helping treat addiction. Um, but basically anything where a particular thought is tied to an emotion. It's like, like with trauma, right? It's like if I think about that thing that happened... I have this emotion or with addiction. It's like, I think about a cigarette or whatever it is. It triggers these emotions in me, right? That it's, it's, it's like, I can't, I can't be logical and I can't do the things I want to do because my emotions kind of come in and take over. And anyway, that, that tapping on those pressure points and kind of the way you talk through things helps to sort of loosen that connection between the emotions and the thoughts um, so that you're able to kind of, you know, have a little more control, I guess, kind of re reevaluate things. It doesn't mean you stop feeling anything, um, but just there's not this like uncontrollable emotional connection with that thing. Um, anyway, it's something, though, that's generally best to do in person. And a lot of what I do is remote, um, mm. you know, through video chatting like we're doing right now. Um, because I, I travel a lot and I'm in different locations um, and that just, you know, it, it just would be a little more difficult to do uh, until they've learned it themselves. And then they can be tapping on themselves while you're talking. Um, and that's something that the counselor I used to see uh, would offer as an option. Like kind of once you knew how it worked, she could do it remotely. But generally, it's something best focused on in person. Anyway, if anyone out there is interested, I definitely recommend looking it up and seeing if you can find someone in your area who does it. Um, definitely worth checking out. I know it, it sounds a little bit kind of woo-woo out there, um, but I found at least for me it was it was really helpful. Well, yeah, I mean, it, I, I could see how it could sound woo-woo, but I'm also thinking like having a somatic element to therapy certainly makes a lot of sense. And I know that there are several modal modalities that are more somatic than cognitive and I know people who right, practice yeah. them, so. Yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, Dedeker, one of my co-hosts um, on the podcast, she's currently um, doing some training for her count her, for her coaching that she does um, that's, uh, I'm blanking on the name right now, but it's a different type of somatic experiencing therapy that's specifically for uh, dealing with trauma, like abuse and things like that. Um, and it's been super helpful for her. So it's like we've each kind of found our own <laughs> type of thing that adds a little more physicality to it that that has been helpful. So actually, this this might be a good time to pivot since you brought trauma up um, in terms of dealing with clients. Is this something that you've noticed? And, and I, I, what I'm thinking in particular is and I know this is kind of an older theory, so I'm just going to throw it out there. But there are some masculinity sure. scholars who sort of talk about 
the the man, men having wounds and the idea of like a wounded man as like an essential part of sort of American masculinity. And you don't you don't have to agree or disagree with that, but I'm wondering if anything like that ever comes up in your work. Uh, yeah, so uh, I think it sounds like what you're talking about is kind of related to what's called the grip model of masculinity. It's GRIP, which stands for the um or I- I'm sorry, you're thinking of um GRSP. So basically there have been these like masculinity paradigms, right? That, that earlier, like in the earlier 1900s um, was the grip model, which was basically saying um, gender role, it's the gender role identity paradigm. And it just means like, if you want to be the healthiest, best man you can be, you be the most man you can be. <laughs> and then vice versa for women. Uh, and then in the eighties is when the gender role strain paradigm was proposed. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of still how I think most um, masculinity studies today operate. Um, and it's basically that it's saying more that proposing that actually the limits and the expectations and the sort of impossible standards that boys are taught they need to adhere to, to be men, uh, is actually very damaging. Uh, it sounds like that's kind of, kind of what you're getting at. And I think that there is a lot of usefulness in understanding that. Um, in kind of accepting that, uh, I guess the way I usually like to to put it to men that I'm working with is rather than thinking um, that masculinity is something that makes you stronger or better, to see it more as like, maybe there's some good things inside of it, but mostly it's a limitation. And if you want to be the most whatever, powerful, best, amazing person you can be, freeing yourself of that limitation is the way to get there, not trying to further limit yourself and simultaneously further limit everybody else. Um, And then more recently, the positive psychology movement has moved to um, try to revisit this and say, hey, maybe there's a way to study masculinity that isn't just focused on the negative. So we were kind of on one side and we swung back the other way and now positive psychology is trying to go, Hey, maybe we can find some middle ground here. Yeah. I talked to Al Vernacchio a couple of weeks ago and he used the phrase penis positive as opposed to penis <laughs> arrogant, which I thought was kind of a funny uh, way of saying That's it. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's fun. So, yeah. So, so could you tell me more about positive psychology? Or how sure, I guess yeah. how you use it, you know. I guess we, we probably people can probably look it up in Wikipedia if they want the whole uh, explanation. But how you yeah, use it? Yeah, <laughs> totally. Um, yeah, basically, positive psychology kind of um, started, I guess, like in the late '90s, early 2000s is kind of when it was being founded. So really, pretty recently. Um, but I think it actually has roots kind of going further back to um, like Maslow. And Maslow, you know, we, we mostly know him from Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, which is this idea that you need like shelter and food before you can self-actualize and find love and things like that, that there's kind of a hierarchy of those things. And whether or not you agree with that, one thing I think Maslow did that was really interesting is all the psychologists of the time were looking at people with problems and they were studying people who had some sort of problem. And we're saying, okay, let's try to understand this problem so that we can fix it. And what Maslow basically did is he came along and said, wait a minute, like, how do we know what a healthy functioning person looks like? How do we know what the goal is? What are we even trying to get a person to? Why don't we study that? So he kind of started this process of like saying, let's study healthy people. Let's figure out what does a well-adjusted, well-functioning person look like? What's what's the range of that? What are the different ways a person can be and still be, you know, well-functioning and stuff like that. And so positive psychology, I think is just kind of an extension of that, um, of saying, let's find ways to focus on the results we want. And what are things that we can do? They call them interventions, but like, what's an intervention? What's a thing that we can do to get ourselves to where we want to be? rather than just focusing on the things we don't want and trying to limit those or kind of bandage those or work around those or, or things like that. Yeah. I, that, that's really, that reminds me of what you said just a little while ago of, of sort of having that approach to masculinity of sort of, instead of 
instead of seeing this as something that's limiting us, although it is in many ways, let's change it into like, what's the goal that we want to achieve? And then how do we get people to to that goal? Yeah, yeah. Like, I guess sometimes I like to think about it as if you imagine like there's two columns of qualities or traits of people and we've labeled the stuff in this column as masculine and the stuff in the other column as feminine and there's positives and negatives in both um and yet we feel like well I've got to pick these and though even though these traits are neg- like there are some negative traits that come along with it like like for example with masculinity like you mentioned arrogance earlier um that yeah saying like being arrogant or maybe being violent or something would be kind of like negative traits that are associated with masculinity. Um, that basically it's saying like, Oh, I, I want to be a man. And so I've got to take all of these, even these ones that I might even know and admit are not great qualities, but like, Oh, well, I got to take them all. And I think that what I usually like to propose to people is like, Hey, you don't have to though. What if instead you could go, I want to be the best person I can be. I'm going to pick the best stuff from either column, right? Not to mention the fact that if you ask a hundred different people, you'll get a hundred different divisions of what's in these two columns, you know, just slightly. So even, even the fact that there's not one standard way this goes, but, but even besides that, just pick the best things that you want. Like look at these qualities and go, Hey, you know, I want to be, confident. I want to be strong. I want to be, you know, providing for the people that I care about, but I also want to be nurturing to the people that I care about. Um, I also want to be a good communicator. I also want to have good relationships. It's like, I would rather pick all of the traits I want to have than say, "Mm, I gotta just choose one or the other. And I gotta pick the bad one or, you know, get all the bad ones that come along with it. So I'm 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 going to riff a little bit off of the idea of being a good communicator because I think communication is a little more of your bailiwick. Um, sure. And I, that's what the one thing I was thinking about before we talked tonight was, you know, and maybe maybe I'm just making assumptions. So feel free to disabuse me of my assumptions. Um, Go for it. But uh, one of the traits of masculinity that sort of the literature tends to come back to over and over again is the um, lack of emotionality and the lack of sort of um, not capacity for, but the lack of social norms around like open communication and um, vulnerability with men. And so I'm just wondering, like, are you finding that that is resonating in your work? And then, you know, how, how do you deal with that? Yeah. um, I mean, something I have found with, Well, I guess there's sort of two different experiences I tend to have. One is that the men who tend to come to me to want to work with me are people who already are aware of my podcast or who who are already part of something that's not the mainstream, right? Maybe they're polyamorous or maybe they're queer or maybe they're... um, just an anarchist, like whatever it is there, or just a nerd. I don't know. They're like somehow outside of the mainstream. And I find that if you're, if you're outside of, if you're outside of what's considered normal in one way, it's often easier to question the normal in other areas. And it's easier to kind of like, you've learned to be comfortable being outside of it already. So it's not such a stretch to go, okay, I I can be outside of it in these other ways. Um, But then when I interact with men kind of just in the world, if the conversation sort of goes to this topic, uh, then there's a little more of a range of um, what I find is men, uh, people in general, really, if they haven't like questioned these things very much about gender, they just state a lot of stuff as facts and like believe a lot of things as facts that are just something they kind of absorbed or maybe maybe a parent told them that at some point that it was a fact or maybe you know some other person told them that as a fact but i think so often it's like we have these things we think are just like natural truths of the universe like gravity um that are actually not they're actually something constructed uh and that 
anyway, sorry, to go back to your question about communication, um, I, I think that a lot of it comes down to this idea that if you, if you are seen as not having the traits that are valued in masculinity, that then your actual like identity as a man is at risk. Like this idea of, of masculinity is very fragile. Like we're, we're taught to always be so worried about losing it. Like it's not something that you earn at one point. It's not something that you like get certified in and now you have it forever. Mm -hmm. It's not even actually like being a man in quotes is not even something you're born into. It's like you constantly every day have to prove it. At least, you know, I'm not saying this is what the way it should be, but I feel like culturally that's kind of how we treat it. And so anything that could be perceived as a threat to that is like, oh gosh, this could get taken from me. Like my identity as a man could be taken from me by someone else um, if they deem that I'm not man enough, right? It's why we say things like man up or, or talk like a man <laughs> or, you know, stuff like that. Um, and so t with communication, I think something like being vulnerable or expressing an emotion is seen as being weak and being weak is not being manly and therefore you're at risk of not being considered a man. I've heard some variation of what you just said from a lot of people that I've talked to. Like mm. it's such a it's yeah. such a huge, huge issue of of as you said, the that's the fragility of masculinity is that it has mm. to be performed constantly. It's like you're yeah. on this precipice and it doesn't take much to knock you off and you have to just prove yourself over and over again. Yeah. You never get it. Even though there are these cultural rights that in some ways like Every society ever has had these rights of initiation for adolescence into adulthood, but it's not good enough for, I guess, yeah. for masculinity. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think that, um, I guess there's also just this thing of like, we're always afraid it's going to get taken away. And we're also never, like, we're never 100% sure what it is we need to be in order for it not to be taken away. And I think that leads to a sort of a constant state of fear, of panic, of like, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God, I'm gonna, uh, what if I'm not man enough? What if I'm not manly enough? Because maybe this person now gave me a slightly different definition of what it means to be a man or a good man or a successful man or whatever. And now all of a sudden, shit, I have to compare that to other things I've gotten. So it's like we're simultaneously told you have to adhere to the standard and at the same time are not given the standard. Yeah, yeah. Or the rules are changing. And then, <laughs> right, right. And then I'm thinking about that in terms of dating. Maybe you can speak a little bit to, again, working with clients who are, who are I guess, imp wanting to improve their dating lives. Because, yeah. I, I mean, to me, the, let me just throw, I guess, a little bit of a theory out and see how you respond to it. Yeah. Um, I often think that, masculinity that the masculine norms around dating and sex are norms of accomplishment and conquest and that mm. a lot of men straight men in particular aren't necessarily asking themselves like do i want to be with this person or am i enjoying myself or do i want to be sleeping with a different person every night for a week or whatever they're just doing what they think is expected or the norm um yeah. and i'm always saying you know shouldn't we be encouraging people to sort of ask themselves what they want and then go get what they want? And if it's that, that's okay, but that might not be what it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's this, yeah, that basically exactly that is a conversation that I've had with a lot of, a lot of men and women, um, kind of when this comes up and it's like, it's such a, it's such an interesting thing because yes, we're kind of taught as men that basically any opportunity for sex, you take it. There's no question there. You, you take it. Unless that sex would somehow decrease your masculinity. And that could be different for different people. Maybe that just means like, oh, it's sex, but it's with another man. That'll make me less masculine, so won't do that. Um, or it's like, oh, this person within, within my social group would not be seen as a valuable person to sleep with. Um, because of their race or their body type or their reputation or like something. So then maybe that's a reason to say no. But even that though, like there's not a lot of negative consequences for men 
for to have sex with anyone right there's not there's not a lot of like social negative consequences it's just like it's either yeah awesome or uh whatever like there's there's kind of not the negative whereas for women it's like maybe you'll get a neutral oh okay or you'll get a slut shaming or you'll get you know more of a negative reaction socially to just saying yes to sex that presents itself <laughs> um so anyway with men i think there's that there's like a lot of pressure or not even pressure but just like the assumption that i will always say yes to this and that i will be happier if i'm having more of it mm. is the other assumption um and it's definitely something that i found i was doing myself um when i particularly after i became polyamorous of being like i need to be dating all the time i need to be dating i need to be having sex with new people i need to be pursuing all the time right there's this that idea of the pursuit uh, that's also a very masculine sort of thing to do um but yeah just that i, I kind of needed to be doing it all the time and i was busy all the time i was exhausted all the time um wasn't being as successful or getting as much done in my career or with my other projects as I wanted uh, because so much of my time and energy was being spent on OkCupid or on Tinder or on just going on dates or trying to meet people or whatever. Um, and that for me, they're just, I don't even know what it was, but there kind of came a point where I guess I just got too tired <laughs> like sort of like like psychically tired not like physically tired but it just kind of was like ugh, i don't fucking care anymore and it kind of took me going through a period of that to realize like hey you know what this is kind of nice actually that if i if i have sex it can be because i really want to and also kind of focusing on i want the sex that i do have to be really good, meaning, you know, with, with partners who I have good chemistry with, who I care about with, who I communicate well with, because communicating about sex makes it better. Uh, hmm. if you're able to actually honestly communicate and get on the same page about it, um, you know, it's like having better rather than just having more, you know, sort of like the, um, I guess just that, that change really, changed things for me. And it made me just also feel a lot more self-confident if I'm able to go, mm, so this person is maybe expressing some interest in me. Like this, this woman seems like she might be interested in me or she's a little flirty. Do I want this right now? Like, do I have time in my life for this right now? Do I feel like it now? I don't know. Maybe I do. And then it's great. But sometimes a lot of the times it's like, you know, maybe not now. But the beauty of it, though, is that by not having that sense of urgency of like, I've got to get the sex now as soon as it's available, or I'm going to try to make it available as soon as possible. By not doing that, I've found that you end up with actually like a lot more relationships and sex available to you when you do want it, because especially you know especially the women in your life they understand like oh this guy isn't just gonna go for this because he can um and he's not gonna push me for it when i might not feel like it there's sort of a sense of like this relaxed confidence um and i found at least that um that you know straight women love that like they love a, a man who doesn't isn't desperate for sex all the time like that's actually if you think about it if you think about someone who's desperate for, for anything, it's not a attractive quality. It's generally like desperation is not associated with success. Um, and yet I feel like we can often kind of go there when it comes to sex, because we think, oh, if I have more of it, then I'll be happier or I will be more highly regarded by my peers or something like that. Um, anyway, so that, that one has also been, I like to call it playing the long game instead of the short game, which I think most dating advice for men is very much focused on the short game. Yeah, it's like, pick up try, artist try stuff. To, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, I don't care how much it makes someone else uncomfortable or whether I really want to do it. I'm just going to see what I can get right now, like how much I can get right now. And I think often a lot of pick up artist stuff comes from the world of sales. 
um, and, and vice versa, that a lot of pickup artist stuff goes into the world of sales. And I think that the same thing is a problem in that world too, that in the world of sales, there's this idea of like, I'm gonna try to get this person to buy as much as possible right now, and not actually caring so much about whether they'll come back to buy more stuff in the future, whether they're actually gonna be happy with what they bought. Uh, I think that that analogy actually kind of applies to this. It's like, you know, we're so focused on, let me get what I can get right now, even if that means this person is going to feel uncomfortable afterward, or they're not really going to like it, or they wouldn't really give me that good of an endorsement later on uh, because of those things. And instead it's like, no, let's build these relationships because then your sales are going to grow longer term and you're going to have this whole network of, of people who like working with you. And I think the same is true with dating and sex. Yeah, it's the, having that. Oh, yeah. sorry. I was going to say it's, no, the, yeah, it's, go ahead. it's the difference between transactional and relational. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, definitely. And and you know, again, getting back to sort of masculine norms in heteronormative society, like transactional sex is more of a masculine norm uh in hetero society and relational sex is not. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think though that that yeah, like in our heteronormative and I would say overall fairly transactional society. Um, you also see women operating this way with men where it's things like, you know, um, gosh, I remember a friend of mine after he got married, you know, his wife jokingly saying something about like, Oh, well he, you know, there was something he didn't do. Like he didn't get her the present that she wanted, or he didn't do something around the house or something. And she's like, well, I guess he's not having sex this week that there. And that's just like, ha ha mm -hmm. funny. That's a normal joke. And it's actually fucked up that that's a normal joke yeah. that like, that, that it's that transactional, that it's like sex is something I give you in return for something you've done for me. And that's just a, it, when you really th think about what you're really saying there, it's pretty messed up. I remember when uh, my very first class in human sexuality at Widener, we learned the circles of sexuality model. And um, withholding sex was actually in the cir same circle as coercion and, and sort of all of these other sort of elements of sex. And we had a, mm. we had a yeah. lot of conversations around that and around the norms about withholding sex. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, that what you said earlier also resonated with me because I, I had lunch recently with a, a person uh, with whom I'd gone on a couple of dates way, way, way long ago in my baby poly days. And um, uh -huh. And it was so interesting because we had this lunch and, and, and it was just, you know, it was casual, almost a, a semi-business lunch because we're working together now on this project. And um, she said, boy, you know, you, you've just changed so much since since that time all those years ago. You know, she's like, you were trying, oh, yeah. you, you were just trying so hard back then. And now you just seem comfortable and at ease in yourself, you know, and all that. And I was like, oh, OK, that's. That's nice. I, I wasn't aware, but, but boy, that feels good to know that I've grown in that way. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. Um, I definitely know looking back at situations from my past, either before polyamory or after it and just going, just kind of looking back and going, damn it. I wish I had known more of this stuff back then or had a little more of this, I guess just like sense of awareness that my experience isn't the same way that everyone else experiences people in the world. And I know that sounds so simple, um, but I think it's actually really difficult for people to get to of this, uh, you know, cause our window, like my window to the world is my own experience of it. And your window to the world is your experience. And I can say like, Oh yeah, someone else had a different experience because different things happened to them. But it's like, we miss the fact that someone else could have a different experience because just things have different meanings for them uh, that maybe they've had so many different experiences from you that this thing is traumatic for them. Whereas for you, it's an inconvenience or vice versa. Maybe this thing's traumatic for you and for them it's not, or maybe this thing is exciting for you and for someone else it's, it's not like the meaning that we attach to things is so different, but it is very real. It is very true. It's not like, oh, well, you just need to learn to see the world more like me and <laughs> then you'll be okay. Um, I think this one comes up a lot when it, when we talk about consent of this idea of, 
you know, we're, we're taught like a no means no. And it's like, well, she never said no. And I think that that is based in this idea that assuming that the other person felt as empowered as you did and as safe as you did to be able to say that no. Um, and I think that even if we think in our own lives of situations, not just about sex, but where we haven't said no to something, because we kind of felt like we couldn't really say no, maybe in like sort of a social situation or you know, like, I think we all hopefully can relate to this, but that situation where that person, maybe a, a coworker or an acquaintance that like you, you, it's kind of a little annoying to spend time with them invites you to something and, and for whatever reason you kind of can't get out of it. It's sort of like, well, uh, okay, yeah, sure. And you go along with it. It's like, it's like that. But I think when it comes to sex with women, it's like that all the time, uh, or at least it can be of this idea that, and, and you might go, that's a ridiculous. She can say no anytime she wants. That'd be fine. That's not her reality. You know, that's not necessarily her experience. Maybe it is for her. Um, but maybe it's not. And that doesn't mean that she's wrong. It doesn't mean her experience is invalid. It very likely means something like she's been shown either by what's happened to other people or what's happened to herself that saying no causes men to push harder or saying no gets you slut shamed or mocked or made fun of or just makes you scared or scared that they're going to slander you or you'll lose reputation for it, like any number of negative consequences. And that as a man, we don't have that. And so it's easy to just go, oh, well, it's not my fault. They should have done this. Uh, you know, they should have just been more clear. Um, and I think that for me, that was a big change. And, and unfortunately, I had to learn that by fucking it up. Um, and having someone express to me after the fact how upset they were with my behavior, um, when I was like, in my mind, was like, but you'd had so many opportunities to say no or to say, I'd rather not, or like, okay, like maybe I'll leave now. Um, and it, it took me, honestly, like a year or two after that of like being upset by that, being bothered by that, to try to figure out, like, to really understand that that her experience of that situation wasn't the same as mine. Um, and that I wish I had been more aware of that and seen more of that. And honestly, one of the things that it took for me to have that was to be on the opposite end of that experience being staying uh, with someone through couch surfing. I was couch surfing with a guy in Singapore uh, where I had nowhere else to stay. I had nowhere else to go. Uh, I knew that he's going to review me. Uh, so there's like a reputation thing at stake. Um, and, it, you know, it's not, not like we had sex or something, but he was a lot more um, like touchy and forward with me. And like I, did, I wasn't happy with the sleeping arrangement. I didn't feel safe with it. I basically didn't get any sleep that night uh, to the point where I had to like pack up my stuff the next day, call around to people like look to try to scramble and find some other place to stay or like could i get an airbnb or a hotel or like what could i afford um to scramble to put that together and then came back while he was out and grabbed all my stuff and left um and then reported it to couch surfing who did nothing we're just like uh eh, whatever uh and i think partly because they're like oh whatever you're a man like just deal with it like man up about it like <laughs> You know, maybe if maybe if it happened to a woman, they'd be more concerned. I don't know. Oh, yeah. um, but anyway, having that experience of being like, why didn't I just say, no, dude, fuck off, get away from me. Or like, actually, no, I, I'm going to sleep out here on the couch or whatever it is. Why didn't I say that? Why didn't I do that? And looking back, I'm like, I wish I had. I wish I had just been more clear. But in that situation at that time, due to those combination of reasons, I didn't think I could. You know, because I was, I don't know, afraid of a bad rating or didn't want to be impolite or didn't want him to react angrily and maybe get violent or I didn't want him to react angrily and kick me out and then I'd have nowhere to stay that night. I, I don't know exactly what it was, but it was enough that I just kind of smiled and nodded and went along with it. And then when I reported him to couch surfing and all that, 
he was pissed at me saying how ungrateful I was and that this was, you know, why didn't I say anything? All that same stuff, like I was just saying in that other situation of, you know, consent with a woman where she felt uncomfortable. Um, and that also, that same situation where I was on the other side, we also didn't have sex with, with that woman who expressed she was made really uncomfortable by me. Um, we didn't have sex in that situation either, but she felt very uncomfortable with, with what did happen. Um, which you know, ultimately was me just having my shirt off in front of her. But for her, that was getting into uncomfortable, dangerous territory, um, similarly to how I felt with this couch surfing host. And it wasn't until after I had that experience that then it really sunk in that extra level. And it was just this kind of, I don't know, this awful feeling of, I, I hate the fact that I've done this to someone else, that I've made them feel this way and that I've probably done that many times. And this was just the one time someone said something to me about it. Um, and so that's something that my hope in the work that I do with men um, and you know what I'm kind of educating men is I hope to try to get that kind of thing across and help men to understand that without having to have that experience and without having to make those mistakes. That would be my dream if that's, <laughs> if that's possible. Yeah, I mean, what I'm hearing a lot really here is sort of how we experience empathy and mm. the idea that there's a sort of an empathy gap with between men and women, again, using heteronormative masculine and feminine right. norms, that kind of thing. Yeah. And then as an educator myself, you know, sort of thinking about how do we bridge the empathy gap without mm -hmm. without as you say, without subjecting people to traumatic experiences because I don't think that's a very good educational model. Right, right. It's not not great. Um, yeah, no. It's that, so that's definitely something that um, I hope by sharing that story and also by you know the men that I work with talking about things like that and kind of helping helping to give them some tools or maybe ask some questions they might not have thought to ask um, to kind of kind of let that reality sink in of the fact that someone else's experience of the world is different from yours and that the things that they feel about that and the meaning that they feel about that is true for them. It's not a universal truth. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't think any of us can know universal truth, but to them that is true. And I think this idea of when someone tells you what they experience or, or what they feel about something to just believe them and go, even if I can't understand it, even if I go, I have no idea how you could possibly feel that way about this thing, to at least believe that it's true. Uh, and I think that that sounds so simple, but it's actually very hard for people. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, and, and, and I mean, again, communications is your thing, and, and sort of, there's just a miscommunication there. And it's, that's, that's frustrating for me just to hear, you know, it must be frustrating... <laughs> for you because you're, you're working with, with this pretty much every day. Yeah. But it's, it's something though, that, um, I, I think it's, it's like getting that understanding of just kind of accepting other people's reality as true, um, has been one of the most, uh, life-changing things that's ever happened for me. Um, and I hope that other people are able to have that experience too. Um, and I don't mean just like that it's made me more, sensitive or whatever, but it's, it's actually kind of allowed me to see how much more is possible um, in terms of like the breadth of human experience and kind of what can feel normal to a person versus what's not. And I think it's actually very empowering for changing those things for yourself, for the better, you know, of going, huh, like even though I can't understand how a person could think that this this thing that they do is normal, which to me is really impressive or very difficult or very scary. And that to them, that's normal. I can't relate to that. I can't get there. But if I can accept that that's true, maybe there's a chance I could understand it eventually that I could get there. Um, and I think that's actually really powerful. Um, so I do want to be sure and put that in there. So it, I, I, people don't think I'm just trying to tell them like, you've got to suffer more along with everyone else. Um, you know, but there's, there's positive aspects to it. Yeah. Well, em empathy cuts all ways. It's not just about suffering, right? It's, it's about 
as you said, it's about mm-hmm. really listening carefully and believing people's explanations of their experience and mm-hmm. trying to, you know, trying to relate to that, trying to understand that, even if even if your first impulse is maybe, well, no, that's that doesn't jive with my view of the world. Right. And I find that particularly with men, um, that there's this tendency when you hear someone express a belief or something that you can't understand, the reaction is to say, no, 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 it's this way. And to kind of explain to the person, uh, not, not, not maybe to any stranger, although I've, I watch men do that quite often, but a lot with female partners, uh, straight men with their female partners. I, I can't even tell you. And I know probably some men are listening going like, I don't do that. Just make sure, though, like really kind of evaluate that because um, I didn't think I did it as much as I've realized that I did it. <laughs> uh, and maybe I even do still sometimes. Uh, you know, I try to be very aware of it. Um, but just accepting someone else's reality is real instead of trying to you think you're being helpful by talking them out of feeling that way. Um, but it's like often we forget the fact that their reality is true first before we try to help them and before we even know if they want help Um, because they might not Uh, and maybe they don't need help even if you're like oh they don't want it but they need it maybe they don't like maybe maybe you don't have the monopoly on what's the best way to feel about things or the best way to think about things so yeah stuff like that yeah I, i was also thinking of that social norm between men which i think that social norm is so strong that I'm reminded of earlier in this conversation with you when you were explaining uh, EFT and you Uh said, oh, it sounds woo woo, but as if you (laughs) as if you assumed that I was sort of judging you and I was about to try to disabuse you of your of your belief Um, when in fact I was just listening and I was like, that's really interesting. I I want to know more about that. Right. I think it's funny because in that sense, it's like, yeah, if I were listening to this podcast and someone went into something like that about something I didn't know and kind of talked about this like emotional, physical connection and pressure points, I'm immediately starting to roll my eyes. <laughs> uh, and that's, that's my reaction to that kind of thing. Even though I've had lots of experiences like, like with that, where I've found really positive things in my life, um, you, know, you know, through those sorts of, you know, quote, woo woo sort of things, I have found some of them to be really helpful. I also find an over-reliance on them to be kind of annoying. And so, so that, that is, yeah, I'm saying I'm putting myself into the shoes of all your listeners and going, they might be thinking this, so I should address that. <laughs> yeah. I'm, 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 I'm just thinking about the, the way in which like I hang out mostly with, you know, geeky guys and, and the performance uh-huh. of masculinity for geeky guys tends to be the performance of expertise and yeah, and the definitely. and the sort of dim, sometimes diminishing of other people's expertise. Mm-hmm. Um, and yep. so you know it's it, it's it's really no different from like I don't know be, being a weightlifter and performing masculinity by lifting more weight or <laughs> you know whatever kind of physical act you're doing. It's really not much different from that. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, a lot of times yeah. I feel like between men, there's this expectation, in fact, that you'll correct people you'll argue you'll debate you'll do all this other stuff and it's like well yeah first of all that might not be the best norm for us as men but it also might Mm -hmm. not work with women in heteronormative society who are not socialized to see that as a productive helpful friendly kind of interaction (laughs) right i i watch so many times where i'll watch that interaction happen whether it's at work or just you know, with random friends or whoever. And I'll watch that interaction where the woman will talk about something either that she just learned about or something she just discovered or a way that she does something. And then her male partner will either give her more facts about that thing or tell her a slightly different way that's better or that's more efficient or something like that even in cases where I personally know that this guy really doesn't know a lot on this subject, he still feels uh, obliged to pipe in and and give some information. And I also watch these women uh, not say anything and not act annoyed by it because they've been taught their whole life to expect it. (laughs) 
you know, and that that's just how it happens. Um, and the unfortunate thing is I, I often see this situation where to go back to my thing about this being limiting for men, um, that it's not just saying, Hey, you can't do this cool thing you used to do, uh, <laughs> is that, um, I often see men and I know I've done this myself kind of miss out on an opportunity to learn about something or to try a different way that might be a better way of doing something because they feel like they need to have the answers already. You know, that it's like, I've got to give my own answers to this thing rather than coming from a place of, oh, well, like, tell me why, why, why does that way seem better to you? Or, oh, that's, that's great. That's cool. I want to know more about that. It's like, we're really disempowering ourselves from learning and improving and becoming better, uh, ironically. Yeah. That's so interesting because that's ex what you said is true. It's so true. But I was thinking, but this is posturing, you know, this is a way of exerting mm. my mastery, my dominance. Uh, I mean, not to go off too much on a tangent, but, you know, the president of our United States is uh, really fond of saying what an expert he is on everything when. Yeah, definitely. In fact, he often isn't an expert on that particular thing. And mm -hmm. this seems to be loved. Some people love this trait in him. Yeah, the, this. It's like the, the masculine trait of even if you don't know what you're talking about, just saying it like it's a fact <laughs> and assuming everyone else is going to believe you. Um, yeah, uh, that's that's I think the current president is an example of doing exactly that. And the fact that we all as a society let men get away with it. Yeah. I, I mean, there um, are many successful, yeah. you know, air quotes, successful people uh, use that yeah. technique. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, it, it's something that's harder for women to get away with. I think sometimes they can pull it off. Uh, but yeah, it's like with men, we're just kind of told, we just kind of learn that we can do that. At least a, a lot of us do. Um, we kind of learn that we can just speak declaratively on something and people believe us. Uh, I've actually found for myself, um, I, I feel like sometimes I will go to extra lengths to to put in caveats if i know that i don't know what i'm talking about because i because i know so i know people are going to believe me because i i enunciate clearly and i'm a white man and i'm now in my late 30s so i'm even more respectable than i was before you know like <laughs> wait till you <laughs> get some gray hair gonna, <laughs> oh yeah yeah <laughs> um that i know people are going to believe me and so sometimes i'll be like but go check this yourself because I'm not totally sure because I don't want to be the one responsible for someone, you know, doing something wrong or screwing something up just because I said it in a declarative way and they took it as fact. Yeah, there's a masculinity scholar, um, Michael Kimmel. You've probably heard of him. Mm -hmm. um, he has a famous story about um, being lecturing at a university and having uh, a, a, an eminent woman sociologist stand up in front of a, a lecture hall and, and start talking about a topic and just, you know, having all this expertise and saying all these things. And then she sort of gets done with her talk and then Kimmel's about to walk up and somebody says, oh, finally, someone who knows what they're talking about. Whoa. You Yikes. know? Yeah. I mean, it, it, I think it happened some years ago, but it's it's just a, it, I don't care if it happened 30 years ago. It's, you know, it's just such a chilling yeah. story, but it's a perfect example of what you're talking about. Yeah, actually, uh, my, my brother and his wife were sharing uh, kind of a similar experience that they've had. So both of them, when they met, were music agents, like agents for bands and things like that, booking tours. And um, <clears throat> she is super knowledgeable about music, you know, knows tons of music trivia, knows tons of different artists, can, you know, name all of the, like, you know, the members of all the classic rock bands. And like, she knows all that sort of stuff, right? And like, could, could, you know, if you quiz her and go, what are your top three favorite, you know, Led Zeppelin songs, she could come up with an answer to that, right? Like she knows the music industry. It's, it's something she knows very well. Um, and my brother, uh, self-admittedly doesn't, you know, he's like, I don't know anything about music. I know how to be a good agent. I don't know a lot of trivia about music. Um, and he was the one who got more promotions, who got more things, who people listen to and bring in for advice to ask about things. 
Um, and when she would be going in for positions or working with a new client, they start by quizzing her to make sure she actually knows enough about music because of that. And like, they're, they're both very aware of this and, and now neither one of them are music agents. Um, but, uh, you know, that that's been her experience and they're very aware of it because, you know, luckily my brother is someone who actually listens to the experience of women uh, and, you know, is able to be aware of that and kind of realize um, what's going on there and just how much she's not been listened to or not taken seriously just because she's a woman. Yeah. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a real bummer. I'm sorry to, sorry to make this a bummer now. No, no. I mean, but I, <laughs> but I, I don't think, I mean, it is a bummer of course, but no, I think these are stories that need to be told and, and it's, it's, we can never remind people too often that these things happen mm. still quite often in our culture. Yeah. 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 Something that, uh, that's been coming to mind while we've been talking about this is actually something that Dedeker mentioned to me a couple of years ago where we were talking about a, a, particular, um, a particular guy that we both know who, who is very much that like needs to assert his opinion about everything, anything that happens or anything someone mentions, he needs to give an opinion on that thing. So not just facts and knowledge, but also just his opinion of the value of that thing or the qualities of that thing or on that subject when no one asked, no one cares, no one wants to know. <laughs> um, but he just gives it always without, without fail. Um, and what she said was, she's like, it, it seems to me like it's something I notice with a lot of men that it's the symptom of just being listened to too much. And <laughs> I thought about that and I was like, you know, yeah, that same thing of like, as a boy, as a man, people are more likely to listen to you when you talk. And so then we're also kind of taught by association to think, oh, people care about what I think. What I think matters to people more than what someone else might think mm. or more than what they might be thinking themselves. So, and I don't think it comes from a bad place of like, I need everyone else to, you know, I'm more important than anyone else, but it's just like, no, I'm helping them because everyone wants to hear my opinion on these things. Everyone wants to hear what I think about these things. Uh, when in reality, people don't a lot of the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's just, we've, we've been listened to so much that we, it's not, not necessarily by a fault of our own. Uh, I, I don't mean to say that, you know, men are blameless for this. Cause I think it's, I think it's our responsibility as good people to be improving ourselves. And part of it's becoming aware of things like that, but it's not like men decided one day, like we're going to be assholes who domineer conversations, but it's like, because that's part of our society, we just grow up thinking, oh yeah, people always want to know what I think about stuff. They yeah. always want me to chime in about it. Yeah. It becomes um, habitual. Because, yeah. Yeah. Because we've been listened to too much. Uh, you know, women on the contrary, haven't been listened to enough, I think, which <laughs> probably, probably leads to the same problem when you think about it. <laughs> yeah. Two sides of the same coin. Yeah. Well, I want to be mindful of, of your time. Um, I, I, my podcast doesn't necessarily have a sub hour rule, but, uh, but you know, it's, it's a decent, decent time to reflect a bit. Um, lately we've been the, going over an hour all the time lately anyway, so <laughs> that's fine. Um, the, well, the, the question that I usually wind things down with is, uh, is there anything I haven't asked you that you would have wanted me to ask you? <laughs> um, yeah. Um, question, question number one would be, uh, maybe we could do this at the end, but like, you know, the, where can we find more of your stuff and all that? Oh yeah. That's kind um, we'll, we'll do that. <laughs> um, but I, I would say, um, that two cool things that are coming up within the next year, uh, that I'm really excited about. One is that, um, multi-amory is doing, um, a study. We're actually funding our own original research. That's going to be peer reviewed and published and all of that. Not like a, you know, like a Cosmo poll, but an actual peer reviewed study, um, about non-monogamy in the United States, um, that we're very excited to do that. Um, it's going to cover some new things that haven't been studied before, as well as, um, kind of, helping to uh, corroborate some of the findings of some other studies. Um, so really excited about that. So 
keep an eye out. Um, we're hoping to collect data later this year um, to actually start getting people involved. Uh, so we're excited about that. And then the other thing is that we're writing a book um, and our book, which will kind of be about not just non-monogamy, but any type of relationship, tools for how to make them better. Like things like how, like actual practical ways to communicate better rather than just saying communicate better mm -hmm. or be more vulnerable or use I statements. It's like we actually have a lot of tools that we've developed over the course of doing this podcast for five years um, to, to kind of do those things and things that we've found to be helpful and that our listeners have found helpful. And we're putting it all together into a book. Um, so that'll come out hopefully sometime next year. So also excited about that. Oh, wow. That's incredibly exciting. Are you, are you at liberty at all to, to say a bit more about the study? Uh, sure. Um, <clears throat> it's going to be, our hope is to have this be a large study. Um, and hopefully, you know, the reach of our podcast and other people in our network can kind of help facilitate that. Mm -hmm. um, also, research into non-monogamy is something that there's not a lot of. You know, there's like a few studies that kind of get dragged out anytime we need studies to back stuff up, you know, like, um, you know, or we have kind of more like sociological research that people like Dr. Eli Sheff are doing mm -hmm. about uh, families and the health of children and stuff like that. But, but uh, Dr. Sheff's research is more... Um, you know, more sociological. It's not like hard numbers. You can't pull it out and say, hey, actually, children in polyamorous households are just as healthy as children who are not, uh, or maybe more so, or I don't know, you know, things like that. Like actually have data mm -hmm. rather than just um, kind of stories of of people having successful childhoods <laughs> growing up in a polyamorous family. Uh, so anyway, health of children is something that we're planning to include in this study. Um, as well as um, things about kind of what are resilience factors that tend to make polyamorous people more successful or non-monogamous people, not just polyamorous people, um, but what, what are the factors that contribute to people having happier um, and more fulfilling relationships in non-monogamy um, so that hopefully this will help to inform our podcast and the things we teach kind of like positive psychology. It's like if we can identify what are the traits and the attributes that make people have a better time with this, how can we find ways to help people foster those traits, you know, and, and grow those abilities so that they can have happier and more fulfilling and healthier relationships. So it's going to be a survey-based? Yes, yes. This is a survey-based study. Um, we're hoping to get um, like 1,000 to 2,000 uh, respondents for it. So pretty decent size compared to most of the studies out there. Also, um, some things that set ours apart that are exciting is uh, that it's, uh, it's going to be a national study um, rather than a lot of the research out there. It just in general, in psychology, a lot of the research is just done on undergrads because that's who the researchers have access to are the students at the college where they work. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so I think particularly for studies about love and about sex and um, non-monogamy is obviously related to both of those things. I think for studies like that, the fact that so much of the research is done on people in their, you know, late teens, early twenties, I think is actually a really bad thing. I think this is actually a, a big problem with a lot of the research. Um, so I, I'm excited that this study is, is hopefully going to be, uh, you know, more diverse than that. Um, and so I, I'm really curious to kind of see those results and how they compare with some of the studies that have been done through universities that are mostly with undergrads and people who live in the college town. Um, and then, then the last thing is that our plan is to do this study every year. Hmm. Um, and by doing that, it allows us to see more of a correlation uh, and even kind of speculate some causation between some of the things that we find over time. So like when you're looking for these traits that make people happier in non-monogamous relationships, doing that over time is important. So then you can actually see, well, which of these things that we found early on and now how is this person doing over time? Have they developed these traits more? Are, do we find that anyone who 
sticks with it longer, tends to develop certain traits, you know, things like that. Like, and that's something that no one has done yet. So we're very excited to be the first ever longitudinal study of non-monogamy. That's great. Yeah. Very exciting. Yeah. Well, uh, if people want to find out more, uh, where can we reach you? Yeah. Um, the best place to go is multiamory.com. Um, and we're actually in the, in the process of redesigning our site fairly soon, but it's still going to have all the same resources. It'll just be organized a little differently. Um, but you can go there to check out our podcast, um, on there, on our about us page, there's, um, you know, information about each of the three of us hosts and my emails up on there. So if people want to contact me, that's probably the easiest way. Um, it's just Jace at multiamory.com, but people tend to misspell Jace. Mm -hmm. It's J A S E. Um, but anyway, you can go to multiamory.com and, uh, get all that information, find out about what we're doing. And that's also where you can sign up on our email list and get announcements about the book coming out and the study and all those sorts of things. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for being my guest this week. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited that you're doing this podcast now. Uh, I feel like we kind of talked about this, like two years ago or something. And it's, it's cool that this is happening. Yeah. This has been a, a sort of project in the back of my brain for a long time and now it, it's come to yeah. fruition. So yeah. Nice. That's great. <laughs> thanks. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Well, there you have it. My interview with Jace Lindgren. I really appreciated how vulnerable Jace was in that interview. Uh, he shared a couple of things that I think were maybe a bit difficult for him to share and uh, even a little bit difficult to hear. And I really appreciated that we were able to have that conversation. And he was so open and honest and willing to do that. And I, I think that, you know, it's something that more men should be willing to do. It's something that I certainly hope that this podcast will continue to do moving forward. Uh, so if you'd like to support the podcast, just really quickly, again, uh, at the end of the show here, a little bit of tidying up, uh, just uh, a little pitch for our Patreon page, um, patreon.com slash talk like a man, where you can support at any any level, um, $1, $2, all the way up to producer level, where uh, I get to say your name on the podcast. So thank you, uh, as always, to Gadi Ben Yehuda, our producer-level supporter. If you want to have any more information about the Talk Like a Man project and all of its various multimedia forms, uh, please visit www.talklikeaman.net. Thanks for listening. I'll be back again soon. Talk Like a Man is affiliated with the Men's Center for Growth and Change, a Philadelphia-based nonprofit organization whose mission is to help men and boys realize their full potential to love and positively connect with others. For more information, please visit menscenterphilly.org. To find out more about the Talk Like a Man project, visit talklikeaman.net.